0: I also wanted to talk to you really about an English businessman who has very close links with Lesotho, Aaron Banks. Do you remember when you first met, when first
1: introduced
2: him? Yeah, it's it's, it's one of those chance meetings just happen between people at some gathering and then somebody comes, you chat. And
0: uh, in your It's chat. the summer of 2018 and I'm interviewing Tom Tabani, the Prime Minister of Lesotho a tiny mountain kingdom surrounded on all sides by South Africa, but somehow a world apart.
2: Some common
0: ideas come,
2: common interests, common outlook on what is good, what is not good.
0: I'm in Lesotho to investigate Aaron Banks, one of the biggest political donors in Britain, who has links in the country, including with the prime minister.
2: He's a good human being and he has a knowledge of economics. And uh, he has uh, the right connections in the right places.
0: What sort of connections? Which is
2: useful, knowing people who matter.
0: Did he help you personally too?
2: He did, yes. What sort of
0: help did he give?
2: Well, I think we we needed to buy food. (laughs) Seriously, and to buy some soap to wash.
0: Some of that exchange is still part of an ongoing investigation into corruption an accusation which Aaron Banks denies.
3: He was all, like, amicable and he was very friendly about it.
0: I was reporting for the BBC at the time, and I was in Lesotho with my producer, Ruth, and cameraman, Barnaby.
3: My one eye was in the eyepiece, and I was looking with my other eye at the reaction from his press secretary. You could tell that he was saying too much, and then the vibe changed. And I just remember standing there going, gosh, we're a long way from anywhere.
0: It's while asking Prime Minister Tabani about foreign money in Lesotho that he and his minders seem to take against my line of questioning. Um, we just have one more question. Um, in 2014, Russia gave a lot of aid to Lesotho, which has never happened before or since. It was given on the same day as, as Aaron Banks's mining licence went through. Was there any link?
2: Uh, no, 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 let me answer the lady. Let me answer. He let just me went me ice
3: cold. I remember yes. he was actually like spitting words out. He was really, really these, quite angry
2: about that.
0: He had these clenched fists.
2: We can make friends with anyone who we think the friendship will be profitable to us as a country.
0: And there was a moment when I thought he might hit me.
2: Russia was never a supporter of Lesotho. I don't know where you get that information from. It's nonsensical. It's rubbish.
3: And I just thought, well, if we get arrested or taken away by these guys, you know, anything can happen. And then I just said to you and Ruth to get to the car.
0: He went very quiet, but just moved with a speed I couldn't have imagined.
3: We'd already had all our suitcases and everything in the car with us. So we just decided to go straight to the border.
0: We were really lucky yeah. because you had experience as a TT driver. <laughs> yeah. The editor of the Lesotho Times had been shot in the head not that long ago.
3: Yeah. And people disappear there all the time. I, remember I remember... you were driving
0: at about 80 miles now the whole way. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Maybe a bit more. It was a bit
0: more.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I remember getting to a T-junction and we turned right. That would take us to a quiet border post. And then the other option was going left back to Masiru. And I remember we pulled over just to sort of talk it through and go, which is going to be the least obvious? Which is going to be the most obvious? Where are they going to look for us? And as that conversation started out of the rearview mirror, I saw a black Mercedes with the like, red, red lights on the roof. So we went left and just floored it, which was madness.
1: Me and
0: Ruth, the producer, we were sort of taking the mini-disc out of the camera so that we'd keep our footage. We were putting a dud one in. I had to hide the real one (laughs) in my shoe.
3: Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, they would have confiscated everything.
0: As we near the border, Ruth and I jump out of the car and walk through separate border gates, while Barnaby drives on, so that if any of us are stopped, the others can still escape with a recording of the interview.
3: I remember stamping my passport and then running back to the car and this guy came up to me and he said, hmm, everything's not okay here. And I just, my heart sank. And I said, why is that, brother? And he said, I don't have anything to eat. I just gave him sort of like five quid and he just smiled and he said, you can go, everything's in order.
0: We were lucky that day. I remember punching the air with relief as we all made it across the border. I've been thinking about this story again because earlier this week, Tom Tabani, the Prime Minister of Lesotho, the man who had me chased out of the country, was forced to resign. He's now set to go on trial for murder. You're listening to Stories of Our Times, from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, murder in the kingdom in the sky. Every time I've been to the tiny southern African kingdom of Lesotho, investigating Aaron Banks, which is a whole other story, I would constantly hear the same rumour.
3: Everybody didn't matter if it was somebody working in a hotel or petrol attendant at a gas station. They were all just talking really, really openly about the fact that he'd done it.
0: The story went that the Prime Minister, 80-year-old Tom Tabani, had had his second wife murdered days before his inauguration in 2017, replacing her as First Lady with his current wife, Messia.
3: He didn't want his ex-wife at the inauguration. He wanted the younger, prettier version by his side.
0: Both Tom Tabani and his wife deny all charges of murder, but after years of speculation, two months ago, every village in Lesotho was plastered with wanted posters put up by the police. On them was a photo of the First Lady. It's hard to explain why all of this would be possible in Lesotho. It's a place like no other, breathtakingly beautiful with big skies that always seem to reflect a mood and the extraordinary mountains that make Lesotho the highest country in the world. But the politics have always been more sinister. It's a place where coups and assassinations come around more regularly than elections. A politician in Lesotho once introduced me to his favourite assassin. In a country with one of the highest murder rates in the world, everyone has one, or so it would seem.
4: The strange wife of incoming Lesotho Prime Minister Thomas Tabane was yesterday shot dead uh, two days before his inauguration. A case that's rocked the small mountain kingdom of Lesotho. The motive is still unknown and investigations are continuing. The couple had been living separately since 2012 and fast forwarded. Fears of
1: another wave of political violence in the southern African mountain kingdom.
0: Oh, Mr. Totanyana, it's been a while. It's been quite some
1: time. How
0: have you been? I'm fine. How are you? Lebohang Totanyana is a former minister of mining in Lesotho and a critic of the recently departed prime minister, Tom Tobani. Can you tell me a bit about the, the prime minister's second wife, the one who was murdered? What was she like?
1: They had been married for years, for well over 10 years, and she was not very... Well known, like the current wife, because uh, she kept to herself.
0: And what happened to the Prime Minister's previous wife?
1: During the winter of 2017, I think on the 15th of June in 2017, his second wife got murdered, a cold blood murder, uh, on a gunshot by some unknown people. And this happened just two days before the Prime Minister could assume office. So
0: just just before his inauguration?
1: Just before his inauguration, which happened on the 17th of June. Tom Tabane is officially Lesotho's Prime Minister. Thousands of his supporters attended his inauguration yesterday at the Sitsoto Stadium in the capital Maseru.
4: Mixed emotions from the new Premier, whose second and estranged wife, Dipolelo, was shot to death two days before the inauguration, Marked with a moment of silence in her memory.
1: And this got the whole world, you know, shaken. And obviously there were suspicions across the board. But I think one that continued to haunt them was the suspicion that the current first lady outgoing may have been involved with him in the plotting of the murder.
0: So tell me, what was it like back then? I mean... His wife is gunned down and two days later he stands up with another woman at the inauguration. What were people saying back then in 2017?
1: You see they had already separated with the wife. And I think what was becoming a bit of a challenge was the divorce process itself. The attempts to have the divorce approved by the court had been going on for some time. So when this happened... Naturally, people suspected that it could have been the easier way to get out of the marriage, and it seems that those suspicions were confirmed later on when the prime minister and his wife were named as uh, primary suspects.
0: Are you still in hiding? Oh,
4: yes, I'm still in hiding.
0: And are you still, um, are you still scared for your life? Very. That's the voice of a woman who used to work for the First Lady. She'll be one of the main witnesses in the trial of the Tabanis, and we've agreed not to name her for her own safety. I've been speaking to her for over a year now.
4: Even at the time everybody believed or suspected that it must be the prime minister, it didn't make sense why the first wife would be killed just two days before the inauguration. And who has the motive? Obviously, is the first lady now. She has always wanted to occupy the office.
0: I understand you have evidence which is vital in the case against the prime minister. What is your evidence and how did you, how did you come across it?
4: I'd rather hold on to that for now because it's my only ammunition against them. So I'd rather not elaborate on that too much. But yes, I have an audio clip where I was talking to the first lady about the the murder. Did she admit her role in it? Yes, we were actually, I would say, discussing of how it happened and how we're going to cover it up. I would say... That was basically why we had the meeting
0: at the time. So you have evidence of the the first lady talking to you, admitting her role and asking how to cover up the murder of the prime minister's first wife? Yes. On my first visit, I remember driving through the capital, Miseru. Every lamppost in town carried the front page of the Lesotho Times and it was emblazoned with the headline, First Lady in Bar Brawl. It was probably the best introduction I could have had to life in Lesotho, which for the last three years has been more or less run by its notorious First Lady.
4: At times when people talk about her, they compare her to Grace Mugabe. They'll be saying, this one is Grace Mugabe on steroids, the way she is. (laughs) Serious. <laughs> Grace Mugabe on steroids. Serious. <laughs> She's Grace Mugabe. Time is ten.
1: <laughs> I I would say you know she she was quite a strong lady.
0: Dr. Kai Hu of Imperial College in London isn't used to doing lots of interviews.
5: It is, like, very new for me. And it's not odd, but, like, it's new.
0: It's been three months since the outbreak began in Wuhan. Since then, Kai and his fellow vaccine researchers at Imperial have suddenly been thrust into the spotlight. And so has his former hometown in China.
5: I'm just happened to be the person who lived in Wuhan and working in the vaccine now (laughs) nothing special
0: (laughs) when we met a few minutes ago Mm -hmm. just outside the studio we sort of looked at each other awkwardly for a moment and didn't shake hands because that's suddenly the new normal is that what we should all be doing now?
5: I think it's wise to have some precautions because we know like the virus can spread that way Uh, I'm not sure if it's like 100% effective, but I think we should follow the NH suggestions. They know more than I do.
0: (laughs) Are you shaking hands with anyone now? Actually,
5: I still do. (laughs) (laughs) But I wash my hands quite often. It's like an occupation-related OCD.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not surprised. When did you start to worry about it? What were you hearing when you realised this was going to be a serious problem?
5: When they said uh, the virus can be transmitted by human-human contact, that's when I, I felt it might be going really bad.
0: Kai lived in the city of Wuhan for 12 years before moving to London, so he knows it well.
5: I lived about like 12 years in Wuhan before I moved here. I have a lot of friends and ex-colleagues still working there and living there.
0: You were actually in China when, when the outbreak happened.
5: I went to Wuhan right before the outbreak started. And when the outbreak actually happened, I was back home with my family. I think it was one morning, one of my friends in Wuhan asked me, Oh, did you know you are so lucky you just left Wuhan, there was an outbreak. I was like shocked. I was like, really? How's that possible?
0: What were your friends saying?
5: At the beginning, they were like, "Fine," because <laughs> nobody thought it would be like this. But most of my friends, they work in the field, so they are like relatively more calm than the rest of the public, I think.
0: So they're they're scientists.
5: Uh, most of them are, yes.
0: And what was that what was their reaction when they heard of this virus?
5: Most of my ex-colleagues, they worked like non-stop since the discovery of this virus until now. You know the outbreak was like during the Chinese New Year festival. Nobody had any rest at all. They were like trying to solve this problem.
0: Wuhan was the first city in the world that went into full lockdown.
5: Now it is better, but few weeks back or maybe like a month back when the outbreak was really, really bad, that was some really dark time. Most of the people, they are like self-isolated at home. You can only like go outside maybe like one people per family per day to get like just like life essentials. Other than that, everybody needs to stay at home and everybody uh, had no idea how long will this last and uh, when will that, Get better, so it is really bad time. But now it's getting better and better. The new cases are dropping like rapidly. Besides Wuhan, most of the places people are trying to go back to their normal lives now.
0: So, are they being allowed out more? Uh, yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's so, that been like? How are they? How are they managing?
5: I think they're. OK, but some of them have gone through a lot of difficult times. Because, like, one of my friends told me, and he said, you have to be in this situation to know how it feels. He said, it is beyond imagine. Like, the whole city is locked down. You have no idea how long this will last and how life will go on and stuff.
0: What was What was their life like?
5: I think it's more about, like, emotionally it's like in your mind you have no idea how long this will last that's
6: make people scary
0: it's like being a prisoner in your own home uh, exactly
6: we are saying please help track us because it means i will be able to go out of my house and go see my friends and go see my family that's really extraordinary and the worry is what happens when the crisis passes how do you get the stuff off the phone again well indeed Can you put the genie back in the bottle? Can you? Well, I think technologically you can, but I think there needs to be a lot of thought into how these are architected from the beginning because if you're trying to put a genie back in the bottle, it would serve you well to think about how you create the genie in the first place Um, because if it's centralized, if it's on big servers that, that are owned by the government, it's going to be very hard to just simply say, you know, trust us. We're going to get rid of this when it's done. Okay, so what you're saying is, let's suppose we do this. Let's suppose it works to an extent during the pandemic. When the pandemic's over, Mm. we would need to make a big political, social effort to say, right, that was then, this is now, now we're going to take it off all the phones and we're going to get rid of that data and we're going to. But the question is, will that day come? Because we don't know what course this pandemic will take. We might get it under control, but. There might be warnings, credible or otherwise, that say, "Okay, this is going to come back. So we're going to keep this whole system in place, because if an argument can be made that this virus could come back or a variation of this virus could come back, we need to have this stuff up and ready so that when it strikes again, we're ready this time. That's a very persuasive argument. So... You wonder if it's this is just going to be what it is. Yeah, you don't want to go... Look, we know you want to get rid of the app, but you don't want to go back to that situation where we had to lock everything down. So let's just keep it for another long period. And... Exactly. I mean, would you? I mean, uh, truly, I mean, we've been in California. We've been in lockdown for six weeks. I would like to go outside. I'd like to take a run. I'd like to go to a bar and see my friends. Am I willing to sacrifice some of my privacy or autonomy to be able to do that where I sit right now I would say yes